0: Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important, the President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the president. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be president. Welcome to the first episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. My name is Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And today we're going to talk about a very important, probably one of the most important ever, Almost Presidents.
1: Yeah, so today we're going to be looking at someone who is probably the most familiar Almost President that ever there was, at least in outside of those in recent memory. And I'm speaking, of course, of RFK or Bobby Kennedy. So he ran in 1968, presumably against Richard Nixon, but he never, of course, made it out of the Democratic primary before he was unfortunately assassinated, uh, ending his
0: career and his life short. Right. and he, With this 1968 campaign, even though, like you're saying, he didn't make it out of even really the Democratic nomination, it still really fired up the imagination of so many different Americans. And it's one of the major reasons why we still talk about him today. But be that as it may, it's also kind of interesting because Bobby Kennedy is sort of the he's one of the more interesting political figures that ever lived because he can kind of at least posthumously smoothly swim both the waters of conservative and progressive politics. There are members of the conservative party in this country as well as Democrats who will say that he is one of their inspirations, which is kind of interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: yeah so rfk is is mainly when, when we think of rfk we often think of his progressive side he is sometimes he's sometimes heralded as having reshaped the democratic primary into something closer to what we know it as today and he's sometimes talked of as a like founding father of modern progressivism but there's this other side to, to rfk that sometimes gets forgotten that comes from the earlier part of his career which inspires a lot of people in conservative circles so the result of all of this is that you have people as diverse as on the one hand barack obama and joe biden citing him as influences and and, and inspirations and then on the way to the other way to the other side you have people like bill o'reilly and Rudy Giuliani, citing him as, as influences and inspirations as well. So there's clearly something dynamic underneath there, right? Like it's not so simple as just him having been this great progressive hero. There's something else going on, which, which we're hoping to get into in the next couple of episodes.
0: Yeah. What we do here at almost presidents is we look at the campaigns of almost presidents and kind of look at the way that they impacted the American culture in both positive and negative ways But with Bobby Kennedy, you really need to go a little bit deeper than that, because we need to see all the things that went into this campaign that concerned the character of this man who was running, but had such an interesting and diverse background. This guy who was involved in a lot of the movements related to McCarthyism, he worked under McCarthy, he did a lot of cutthroat tactics when he was fighting against organized crime, and yet he was this guy who made a call to get Martin Luther King out of jail. He was this guy who worked with Cesar Chavez and was involved in labor unrest, you know, civil rights movement, anti-Vietnam. All this stuff took place within this one guy. So he's a very complicated guy and you can see already how he inspired love from both the left and the right. So what we need to understand, probably before we even get into Bobby Kennedy himself, is where he came from. I mean, this guy is a Kennedy but he's not one of the shining star Kennedys like Joe Jr. or Jack. He's not the apple of his father's eye. And yet he still comes from this family that is probably the closest thing that America has to a royal family.
1: Yeah, and, and we should say he's he's not a shining star. He's a shining star to a lot of Americans, but he's not, he's just not a shining star in his time to the Kennedys. And, and probably if, this is going to be an example on the Almost Presidents podcast of – of a, of a time when the character himself is the most important. Bobby Kennedy, probably more so than anybody else we're going to cover on this podcast, who he is as a person is pretty central to this whole story of his election campaign. And talking about who he is as a person, and really talking about who any Kennedy is as a person, is going to inevitably take us back to... The patriarch of the Kennedy family Joe Kennedy senior
0: right which is a way of saying that this episode is going to serve as a sort of prologue but we will hope that it's a sort of way to whet your appetite as far as who Bobby Kennedy is by telling you about the things that shaped his youth and turning into who he would become so yes the rise of Joe Kennedy senior because of course He was the, I would use the word primary, but I'm almost leaning towards the word soul. He was the sole breadwinner for the Kennedy clan and this wealth that he had enabled him to not only provide them with a comfortable life where they were able to do all sorts of costly things like yachts and live all over the world, but they were also able to attend the best schools. They were also able to um, see to their political life with a sense of Um, I don't want to say leisure, but they always knew that he would be in the background cutting the check. So let's let's talk about that guy. So Joe Kennedy, Sr. He was born in 1888 and he was raised in the Irish community in Boston, Massachusetts. And he was brought up Catholic as well. So those two things, they really had a major impact on not only the way that he was brought up and even viewed throughout, I would say the entirety of his life, but also his children we will even see Jack when he's on the presidential campaign defending or equivocating with people about aspects of being potentially the first Catholic president in the white house. But did you want to keep going a little bit about Joseph Kennedy senior?
1: Yeah. So um, there, there's a narrative about Joe Kennedy senior that we want to kind of dispel here, which is that he is, and this is sort of the, the classic, American dream type story that he's this guy who comes from nothing and becomes this enormously wealthy and powerful figure. Um, And one side of that, of course is true, but uh, what's, what's missing, right. Is that he really starts out in this privileged position. And in some sense, when you look at his background, you can sort of see where he gets a lot of his, his qualities. So his father is a guy named Patrick Joseph Kennedy, and he's an influential political figure and businessman in Massachusetts and more specifically, Boston. So, his business role—he's a—he has a big role in two of Boston's major financial institutions: the Columbia Trust Company and Sumner Savings Bank. So, we bring this up to point out that he doesn't come from nothing, right? He starts out in this privileged position. But that being said, something that we'll see down the road is that uh, Joe Kennedy certainly does a lot with what he's given.
0: Sure. And with that being said, we can certainly say, though, that finance and politics were in the Kennedy blood before Joe Sr. It started out with with his father even introducing him to those things. As for Joe Kennedy, though, when he was a student, he didn't really show any signs that he was going to be the titanic you know, businessman that he was. He wasn't a very gifted student at all. When he went to college and after he graduated in nineteen twelve and went into finance, he became the president of a bank at the age of twenty five. And now I'm I'm twenty seven myself, and I believe you you are twenty five. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm twenty I'm twenty five, so this is yeah. a little bit uh...
0: Yeah, so perhaps with the first for the first episode here we won't disclose our jobs and how tremendously successful we are, but we will say as podcasters. We are certainly not the president of, the not bank. The president of a bank. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I already missed that window on 27. So I should have been one two years ago. <laughs> but Joe Kennedy senior, he didn't let that be the end point. He never rested on his laurels. He immediately began investing in real estate and in the stock market.
1: Yeah. And so it's important to note with the stock market at that time, Joseph Kennedy winds up doing things on the start, stock market that would be wildly illegal today. But the thing is, is that's what every trader was doing. The reason that certain things on the stock market are considered illegal today is because we found out how, just how bad they were in the Great Depression, which we're going to talk about at some point. So some things that Kennedy wound up doing, he he wound up you know heavily manipulating the stock market, which was basically the norm in those days. There was really... It wasn't really seen as a problem to attempts to manipulate the price of stocks in order to make yourself you know, a certain amount of money. And this could even include things as seemingly egregious as bribing journalists to provide false information to the public in order to artificially inflate or deflate the value of a stock.
0: That's so dirty.
1: Yeah, so it, it's it's pretty dirty, but that was the norm back then. And it's it was so much the norm that when Kennedy would go on to, as we'll see, be nominated to certain posts. This wasn't really something that was seen as a scandal. This wasn't something that his critics were bringing up against him because it was just what people
0: were doing back then. And this maybe we can mark as the beginning of Kennedy's ability to masterfully manipulate the press using yes. bribes and other things, not only just to help yes. himself and acquiring his fortune, but also to help his children when they would go on to a political office.
1: Yeah, so and then unlike a lot of people who are in his position, Kennedy calls it quits before the big stock market crash in nineteen twenty nine. So before the Great Depression, he winds up pulling himself out of the stock market, so to speak. And as a result, he doesn't he, he winds up in a pretty good position after the Great Depression. In fact, that's a huge understatement. He's one of he's one of a handful of the wealthiest people in the country at that point. And he has enough money to to set up a million-dollar trust fund for each of his children, of which he has nine, you know, that Irish Catholic way of doing things. So he he has million-dollar trust funds for all of his kids. By 1935, Joe Kennedy's wealth, is his his net worth is $180 million. And so for context, that is about $3.4 billion in today's money. Um, We wanted to give you a better perspective than just that. So an example of someone who has roughly equivalent wealth Howard Schultz who used to be the CEO of Starbucks you might know him from his his failed presidential campaign in, in uh, 20 that he ran in 2019
0: maybe we'll cover him at some point
1: yeah so so he had a he has about five or six billion dollars so for for context that's around where Joe Kennedy's at but even that doesn't really get you the real picture because you have to keep in mind that during the Great Depression everyone is just dirt poor Right. Everyone is, is extremely poor because of, of what's happened. And of course, Joe Kennedy's involvement in all of this, you can kind of see that maybe he's not always viewed as like the best person because, you know, he was this stock market guy, and the crash of the stock market led to this these like really horrible years. But this wealth that Joe Kennedy winds up acquiring is what puts his family in such a comfortable and privileged position which winds up being their source of funding for this extravagant private life and this extensive political life that pretty much, you know, even to the modern day, all of the Kennedys are involved in.
0: Yeah. And as we were reading about him, it seems like he was almost a Renaissance man of sorts. I mean, he invested in all sorts of things from real estate. Yep. He, (laughs) this is kind of going to definitely haunt Bobby and the Jimmy Hoffa days. Um, He might have been involved with different mobsters, bootlegging things during Prohibition. He was even into Hollywood motion pictures in the early days of Hollywood, which perhaps might have gone on to influence the debates that Jack had with Nixon and the success that he found. I I wonder if there was some some advice that could have come from his father. So yeah, I mean, the Kennedys, I mean, they just became this American style of royalty. I mean, they weren't this long-held monarchy but they were this family where this wealth was so substantial that it was just going to become generational in an American kind of way yeah so let's talk now about how Joe wound up using his money to influence not just things relating to his own fortune like the stock market but into politics in the days of FDR's rise Joe Kennedy gave many contributions to the Democratic Party. These were quite generous, not added contributions. He gave $25,000, I believe just to Roosevelt himself. And then he made a loan of $50,000 that he gave to the Democratic National Committee to help them along. So this was a big deal because not only was Kennedy making a major investment in a party and a candidate, but he was also staking his reputation on Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1932 election there was even a point in one of the elections of fdr i hesitate to specify which because there were so many i don't I want to get myself in trouble but he even wrote a book that was distributed this little it was almost like a pamphlet it was a very short book that said i think it was like i back fdr or something like that right. so he was willing to you know gamble that fdr was was the guy not only to lead the nation but the one who was going to give him a post that would put him into the political sphere. And this wound up happening in 1934. Did you want to talk about his uh, post to the Securities and Exchange Commission a little bit?
1: Yeah, so FDR quite famously founds and sets up the Securities and Exchange Commission to oversee the stock market. And he hires and he, he brings in Kennedy as the guy who's going to be the head of it. Um, This was a bit controversial at the time because Kennedy, of course, as we said, made a fortune in the stock market and his job would be to regulate and outlaw many of the businesses that he literally got rich off of. So um, you can see why it may have been a little bit questionable, but FDR seems to have the logic that if you want to catch a thief, you need to hire one. That mostly seemed to be the right move. This job made Kennedy very well-known and respected in Washington, and it garnered him a lot of acclaim. A lot of the critics who wound up going after him when he was first nominated to the Post wound up praising his work as the head of of the SEC. He does wind up resigning in 1935, but that isn't the end of his political career, and it isn't the end of his time with FDR. FDR winds up then nominating him to the Maritime Commission, which was created to oversee the country's shipping industry. And he had, yeah, so he has Kennedy head that as well, before he assigns Joe Sr. to be ambassador to England. I don't know if you want to jump in and talk
0: about that. Yes, I would love to. So in 1937, Joe Sr. is appointed the ambassador to England, and this was a job. That wasn't only one of the ones that he would be remembered for as far as his personal legacy. Remembered, we'd we'd probably want to say more in an infamous way, which we'll get to. But this was also something that would haunt his children, namely Bobby, when they're in the classroom. And they're hearing about some of his firm stances when it comes to situations going on in England, as well as affecting the United States. But when he first arrived there in 1938, him and his family were seen as celebrities overseas. Young Bobby and his siblings were able to meet all sorts of powerful figures in the sphere of politics, like the British monarchy, as well as religion. Of course, they are Catholic, right? So they met the Pope. And the way that you would imagine perhaps yourself meeting these people, you need to scrub that. Because the way that Bobby and his brothers, especially Jack and Joe Jr. would have viewed meeting these people is that they're people that I'm going to become one day. I'm gonna become powerful like them. I'm gonna walk the halls of power. I'm gonna be making important decisions just like these people. That's how these kids are being groomed by their father. Maybe not so much Bobby, but I have to imagine that Bobby would still have that vision in his mind that Kennedys were going to become powerful just like these people that they were meeting. So this wasn't like a field trip meeting celebrities. This was like meeting some guy who you're going to do his job at some point, something more like that. But of course, I think we're talking a little bit too much about maybe something that's not as important. This is 1937. I mean, the Second World War is about to loom. So the fact that Joe Sr. was appointed to be the ambassador to England as an Irish Catholic, which as an Irish person is a real triumph, really kind of was swamped by the fact that Germany was in the process of acquiring Lebensraum. They were conquering a lot of different countries and Kennedy found himself with a not very popular outlook. Kennedy was the one with an anti-war policy. When it came to the US, he was pushing for neutrality. When it came to the British, he was pushing for appeasement. These were views that would see him on the wrong side of history in his own time. But I don't know. I guess we like to defend him a little bit, not too much, sure. but a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, what <laughs> this outlook? Why could he have been feeling this way? You know. It,
1: yeah. So I mean, there's there's two two ways you could look at this, right? I mean, Joe Kennedy had children, right? And I think everyone at the time had a concept of like what, like how bad a war like that could get, and advocating for your own children to be involved in a war, especially when two of your sons are the dra- are of the age of draft, that's not an easy thing to to push for, and so so there, so you can kind of at least try to see where he's coming from to an extent, but we also would be remiss if we didn't note that. Kennedy was known at the time by both the Germans and the British as a friend to the Germans, and he often expressed anti-Semitic views, such as the view that FDR was being manipulated by Jewish entities to be in opposition to the Nazis. So we can't really like totally vindicate him here. Like, there's definitely seems to be something going on there, but there 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 could be you know good reasons why one might be. Uh, isolationist. However, this obviously put him at odds with the like many people in the British government, particularly those who felt like they were under attack at the time. Many people felt like he was expressing pro-Nazi sympathizers, and in nineteen or er, many people felt like he was expressing pro-Nazi sympathies. And in nineteen forty, when the Chamberlain government, who was sympathetic to Kennedy, fell apart, when Churchill. The new prime minister came into power. He began. He began advocating for Joe Kennedy's removal from his post, and eventually, this culminates in in Joe Kennedy resigning from the position in 1940.
0: Yeah, I, ca- I can't imagine with those views that he would even remotely get along with Winston Churchill. Yeah. So he came back to America with a certain level of shame, and even before he was removed from the post, this was something that the Kennedy kids were dealing with in their classrooms. I think at this point we should introduce Bobby Kennedy. Robert Francis Kennedy was born in 1925. Like we mentioned, there were nine kids in the Kennedy family. He was the seventh of nine. The roll call of the Kennedy family started out with Joseph Jr., who was seen as the king that his father was trying to make. This was the one that was going to become president. Next was John, who was almost a backup plan. He was also being groomed for success. Rosemary is who comes next. This was the daughter who was tragically the bottomized and just never returned from that to who she who she once was. Very sad. Kathleen comes next. Kathleen, I believe, was killed in a plane crash. And we have Eunice, Patricia, this is where Robert comes in. Jean, and then Ted being the youngest. So, like we were talking about, Joe Kennedy's success in business and politics, it paved much of the way for what his sons would accomplish. But as far as the way that the sons ranked on his hierarchy bobby was really low and the kennedy family was fiercely competitive if it weren't for his death in combat in 1944 joe senior had put all his hopes in joe jr while also being actively interested in john but not the same level of interest was shown in young bobby he was seen as the runt of the litter He became, oftentimes, the brunt of his siblings teasing. He didn't always know how to stand up for himself, so that caused him to cling to his mother a lot. He was a a kind, bashful child who was able to show a level of empathy that some of his siblings weren't. But when it came to being teased, oftentimes his only defense mechanism was being self-deprecating, just figuring out what they were doing to make fun of him, and kind of double down on it to see if he could make them laugh, at least. And... While this may or may not have been something that worked for him, it caused concern among his mother and perhaps his father that he might go into life being coward, doormat that people thought they could walk all over. And so as a result, he really wasn't thought much of by Joe Sr., even more so than already he really wasn't thought that much of. And so Joe Sr. didn't pay much of, play much of a role in micromanaging his education the way that he did from for, for his other sons. So in school, Bobby, he really cycled through a lot of schools. I think it was easily double digits, the amount of schools yeah. that he had cycled through. He was not an exceptional athlete or a student, although athletics is kind of interesting. When he was a football player, he was known to go after the biggest guy, even though he was a smaller guy, a slower guy. He wasn't really going to be you know the varsity hero, by any stretch, but he was willing to make up for it with just a level of just anger that he would just put into the game. That must have been pretty awesome to see, um, especially given the fact that there was a game where he actually broke his leg on a play, and the next play he just he just went into play <laughs> after that.
1: Yeah. So as we said, he winds up bouncing around between schools, but pretty much the the common thread throughout it all is that his grades average from you know bad to worse, basically. He's He ranges from below average to failing. So school is really not his thing, but he is committed to his faith. As we said, the Kennedys were Catholic, so Bobby Kennedy is, is also Catholic. And so he's very knowledgeable and very involved in his faith. He's known for praying a lot. He's anecdotally, like, plenty of people discuss times when they sort of, like, walked in on Bobby and he's just sort of there praying. But he's also known during Mass, to jump in and help out the priests if there was an altar boy who wasn't present or if there was some sort of additional help needed. So somewhere where he finds sort of his niche is in his faith. He's very interested in this and involved in this.
0: But he also seemed to know the level of responsibility that comes from just having that last name, Kennedy. We talked about the ferocity that he would show on the gridiron. He would also show that in the different boarding schools that he attended If for whatever reason Joe senior's name was being brought up and kind of raked through the coals because of his isolationist policies and Bobby was not afraid to throw down with anybody that said that anybody whatsoever. He would just throw down and this made him seem abrasive to a lot of people at schools who otherwise might have become his friend. He was just so quick to go after somebody and this is a trait that we will definitely see manifest itself more when he becomes a prosecutor. He really has a talent for just going at somebody and this might have been the early days where he starts showing it. At boarding schools, he, I mean, this is something that followed him his whole life, but at boarding school, he found himself longing for the same kind of attention that his father showed his other brothers. The Kennedy family is always very competitive. He always felt like he was the underdog and that didn't stop him from noticing all the things that his father did for his other two brothers. He noticed that his father would write these letters to his brothers just breaking down politics and current affairs, giving his opinion of the whole thing, and then receiving correspondence back. This was something that he had never received. It was saved only for Joe Jr. and Jack. And so he actually it's a cute story, I feel like, almost if it weren't for the fact that Joe Sr. is yeah, a little or, bit like, really a, sad. A, a little bit sinister, and it is kind of sad, <laughs> yeah. He like he just he boned up on all the politics all the current affairs of the day i think he practiced debated his friends like he just wanted to make sure he knew it all so that he could reach out to joe senior and just say hey dad can you send me a little letter the same way you do my brothers just breaking down the politics so that i could learn about things and you know to joe senior's credit he did send him a letter back and maybe to bobby's discredit although he was young and he he was idolizing his father, who just wouldn't show him affection. He prized this letter, held it to his chest, but he also treated his father's opinions like they had to be his own. And so if he found a friend that wound up disagreeing with it, it was just su- – it was suddenly personal. It wasn't opinions. It was, you're attacking my father. Therefore, I really have to, gung-ho, yeah. go after you.
1: Yeah. And so – Bringing it sort of, I guess, segue into to the Kennedy family dynamic, as we mentioned, the Kennedy family is is a fiercely competitive family. It, there is sort of a, di- a dynamic centered around being the best, being the winner, being the most impressive to Joe Sr. Um, and this is just not the type of environment that uh, a young Bobby is going to thrive in. Bobby Kennedy will, of course, find his his nation and, and find success. But he early on, he doesn't thrive in this environment. Um, and so he winds up making a lot of efforts to keep up with his older brothers who are the favorites and the successful ones, at least in the eyes of his father. So one anecdote, Bobby at one point jumps into the Nantucket Sound, the Nantucket Sound, but he wasn't a particularly confident swimmer. And so Jack has to rescue him. And after rescuing him, Jack says that what Bobby did there was either showing a lot of courage or showing no sense at all, depending on how you looked at it.
0: And I love that quote, because I feel like that could sum up a lot of Bobby's earlier career. Yeah. Showed a lot. of Maybe the whole thing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the notes here. I'm trying to figure out where it is. Uh, Yeah. Showed a lot of courage or no sense at all, depending on how you looked at it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, so Bobby always feels close, always says he felt closer to Jack than he did to Joe Jr. And he says that Jack would sometimes pay attention to him, take him on walks, talk about adventure novels with him. Of course, none of this necessarily means they were close. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's,
1: of course, more complicated in the Kennedy family because they had this, like, odd, you know, competitive dynamic going on.
0: Yeah, I don't like definitively viewing them as, like, the popular kids because I feel like that sells them short, but... There is a certain sense of you'll see them talking, you'll see them laughing, but you won't know. You might feel a little suspicious to yourself, like, oh, they actually hate each other, or oh, they're, yeah, they're right. probably not that close as they seem.
1: Yeah, and so much like things would be in their adult life, Bobby winds up walking in Jack's shadow a lot and often catering to his needs and often be, being expected to cater to his needs and to help him reach his goals, even at the expense of his own goals.
0: Absolutely. So I guess we could just picture Bobby as a little kid trying to tag along with his older siblings, trying to keep up, and not always being able to do that. Yeah, sort of the classic image of, like, a younger sibling. Yeah, and there are certain challenges in life. Like, for Bobby, with the Nantucket Sound anecdote that you were talking about, he was trying to show that he could swim just as well as his siblings. The Kennedy family was known for racing yachts. You know, I'm sure there were instances... Or not. Either way, that's an activity just like swimming where if he practiced enough, he would be able to beat his brother's average, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he loved to play touch football. I'm sure if he practiced enough, he could find ways to become a better touch football player at whatever position we're talking about. But there are certain challenges in life that have a timestamp on them because they're happening within a fixed period of time. They end and it's over. And one of those is World War II which was the biggest challenge to face anybody in you know joe jr jfk and rfk's generation and in this one he would fall woefully short and it wasn't like he could just jump in the nantucket sound and become a better swimmer swimmer he never got the chance to serve whereas his brothers both became war heroes starting with joe jr joe jr was a pilot in the navy he was based out of england during the war which if you remember some of your World War II history, this was certainly a hotbed of activity, especially earlier in the war. And he flew 26 missions. Bobby was very aware of his brother, the pilot. He actually was 18. At the time, a lot of this was going on, and he wanted nothing more than to be a pilot, just like his brother, the hero. Joe Jr. volunteers for this mission called Operation Aphrodite, took place in 1944. This was a top secret mission. At the time, the Germans were building these V-rockets, Hitler were them the vengeance weapons, these rockets to launch at England, and so there was a facility in France that was creating these. Operation Aphrodite was supposed to get rid of these so that they wouldn't threaten the Allies anymore. But the way that this mission was carried out was kind of like a suicide mission for pilots like Joe Jr., because... Joe and his co-pilot were expected to fly a B-24 that was filled with explosives, which was incredibly dangerous to do because if you get shot, not only is there a risk of your plane getting damaged, forcing you to fall out of the sky, but you would literally blow up. So this was a steam suicide mission, not because they were going to fly the B-24 with explosives into the, the rocket facility, but because at a certain point in their flight, It was going to be controlled remotely, which seems to me to be pretty, pretty high tech at the time. Honestly, I was interested to read that, but it was going to switch over to being remotely controlled. The pilots were going to parachute out and then the plane filled with explosives was going to be guided to its target where it would explode and hopefully destroy, you know, whatever it's being, it's being aimed at. Unfortunately, what wound up happening is that the plane exploded prematurely in the sky around 10 minutes before both men were supposed to jump out. Of course, they were both killed instantly. The cause of the explosion is unknown. There's been some speculation that maybe it was some faulty wiring, or maybe as the pilots were moving around, preparing to jump out, somebody um, tripped over something or hit something. The mission details themselves were actually kept secret from Joe Kennedy Sr. until the 60s. Joe Kennedy Jr. was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross. His death was... Tragic and destroyed nobody in the Kennedy family like Joe Kennedy senior the moment that they were informed of his death Joe Kennedy actually rounded up his family and had them all told the news And I think they were having a fun day at the beach They were probably sailing their boats or whatever they were doing and he commanded them to go back to what they were doing to, to Keep having fun just to go and do what they were doing and He went up to his room and was just destroyed absolutely devastated Just weeping crying an absolute tragedy for all the kennedys but especially him and that was why he put a word in to have a destroyer named after him in 1946 this destroyer it's called the uss joseph kennedy jr and this is a destroyer where bobby would actually serve which we'll get to yeah. but moving on to jack because jack was actually a war hero before joe jr signed on for this dangerous mission which People have said that that might have been the reason why Joe Jr. signed on for this dangerous mission because he had to show up Jack, who was already this war hero in the Pacific theater. I don't know. I mean, that one gets kind of tricky because speculation why?
1: Speculation. Sure.
0: Yeah, definitely speculation. I think it's worth contemplating, but to me, I'm not sure why you would sign on for a top secret mission right. if you're trying to have clout in the Kennedy family. You know, sure. you wouldn't be able to really say what you had uh, had done. With that being said, Jack's war saga took place also with the Navy. That was the branch that he served. He was in the Pacific Theater and he was in command of what was called a PT boat, which stands for patrol torpedo. His boat specifically was called PT boat 09 or sorry, PT boat 109. And these boats were smaller boats. Their purpose was not to, you know, destroy major enemy boats but to harass supply lines to make warfare kind of hell because they just kept bothering you i think we can all think of a bug who does the same thing which is why they were nicknamed the mosquito boats these boats are so small they fit two officers and 11 crewmen it's hard to picture jack on one of these boats just considering that he had addison's disease and he had back pain just chronic back pain his whole life so i'm sure a lot of the time on this boat was uncomfortable for him But at the same time, a lot of it was probably very comfortable for him. I mean, boats was what he was used to. He grew up racing boats, and here he is. He's got command of his own patrol boat. On August 2nd, 1943, Jack's boat was rammed by a Japanese destroyer. This killed two members of the crew, and it sunk the boat in the middle of the ocean. So now Jack is in a situation where he's just not some rich guy's son going to war. He actually has to act, and he actually has to choose... Whether he's going to be a hero, or whether he's going to crumple in the face of combat. So Jack chose to be the hero. Although he was injured himself, he rescued a crewmate who was injured and probably going to drown. And together they swam to a nearby island. Fortunately, this island was where a lot of the survivors of the crash had joined up. And under Jack's leadership, he led them to safety by ordering them to swim to a nearby island. This island had food and water for them to replenish and he was able to enlist the help of local natives of the island in order to get them rescued and now I haven't read the book that he ghost wrote, but I would hope that he would have the, the names of those natives because they were kind of the ones who who were clutching getting them rescued by a another ship either way this this rescue and Jack Kennedy's level-headedness throughout the whole thing and the fact that his father was Joe Kennedy made him a national war hero he had a book ghost written about it and this was something that he was able to use as great currency when he ran for any sort of office he was this american war hero now i'm not trying to undersell him by any stretch but what was bobby's life like during those war years while all of this is going down with
1: his brothers at the age of 18 Bobby, the war sort of breaks out, and Bobby desperately wants to be a pilot like his brother, Joe Jr., but he fails the aptitude test for flight school. He winds up getting enlisted in 1943 in the V-12 training program for naval officers at Harvard, but he doesn't see action at all in World War II. He winds up actually dropping out of that program. So, he, yeah, he doesn't see action in World War II, but he serves on a destroyer um, named... The USS Joseph P Kennedy Jr. So he's serving literally on the destroyer that is named after his his war hero brother, who who died, you know, for his country.
0: And he took a demotion to do that from an officer yeah. to just a regular seaman. Yeah, second class specifically. So
1: he serves on the USS Joseph P Kennedy Jr. in in Cuba. And he's discharged from the Navy in May 1946 at the age of 20. So naturally, he feels unfulfilled, he feels untested, and he feels like he hasn't lived up to the precedent that was set for him by his brothers. You can probably imagine, like, given the, the fact that this event was a defining moment in their generation, he feels Outside of it all, he feels sort of left out from what everyone else was a part of. This, this sort of like great and like enormous event that everyone was a part of.
0: And now it's sad to say, but Joe Kennedy Sr., his king that he was trying to make, Joe Jr., has unfortunately been killed in the war. So a lot of the responsibility now of bringing the Kennedy name to a significant hall of power falls on Jack course the same way it had been for all of Bobby's childhood he's going to be the one in the shadow of that and I think that would be a good place to leave Bobby for this episode he is feeling unfulfilled he is feeling directionless he knows he's a Kennedy he knows that that name comes with a great amount of responsibility and that he needs to defend it and he needs to make his dad proud because that's what he needs to do. He just needs, he needs to make his dad proud. He needs to prove that he is a rightful owner of that name. And so we'll see how he starts to do that in the next episode of Almost President's Podcast.
1: Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. If you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. You can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.
0: Everyone, thank you again for listening to the first episode of The Almost Presidents Podcast. We hope you enjoyed, and we really appreciate you listening. So before we end each pod, we just want to have a little bit of a section that we're just going to call Book Recommendations, where we talk about some of the books that we're reading that aren't necessarily for the pod, because the podcast reading isn't where our reading life ends. And hopefully, maybe we share something that you might be interested in reading. So Kevin, what are you reading lately? So I picked up
1: this biography of Thaddeus Stevens by a guy named Bruce Levin. It's called Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice. And it really is fantastic for people who maybe forgot this from their history class. Thaddeus Stevens is like the fiery abolitionist and radical Republican. He was kind of like the leader of the radical faction, of the Republican party um, leading up to the civil war. So not kind of like in the moderate wing, like Abraham Lincoln was, but like in the really radical wing. Um, And he was a super intense guy, like calling slave owners traitors. He looks
0: intense in the photograph on that picture.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he really, he really does. Some people called him the spirit of John Brown in Congress, which is saying something. And uh, yeah, he was hated for a very long time. Our own John F. Kennedy in his uh, like book, Profiles of Courage or whatever, had very negative things to say about him. But it's only just recently that people have kind of looked back and realized that like actually slavery was something to be really upset about. And like if you were very harsh towards slave owners, maybe that was like kind of cool, <laughs> even though at the time it wasn't accepted. Um, so a little anecdote um, that kind of gives people the sense of like how he was, um, after the, the John Brown scandal. So when John Brown went down and like killed a bunch of slave owners, there was a, it was a big uproar in Congress. And, um, when he went to like, give his opinion about it, he said that he did think John Brown should be hung, but not because he had done anything wrong, but because he was stupid for thinking that he could take on Virginia with only 17 men, because actually he would need 25 for that.
0: Wow. That reminds me of that quote, I think it was by a German tank commander, right? Where he was like talking shit about the Sherman tank, where he said, you know, a, pan- a Panzer could take out four Sherman tanks, but the Americans always had like a fifth or whatever the, the thing is. Right. Check it out. Thaddeus Stevens by Bruce Levin. So I guess this will be a week where we're both talking about biography. I'm currently reading Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson, and I'm reading the audiobook, which is narrated by Alfred Molina, who is of course known best as Doc Ock, but has a fantastic voice, so it's a really enjoyable audiobook to listen to. I'm glad they also included this PDF, because I I didn't think when I purchased it that I was listening to a book that was probably going to contain a lot of his paintings in it. And how was that going to work you out? Need to see a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And fortunately, the audiobook comes with this PDF. And instead of, I guess, the page in the book where it would be, Alfred Molina just says, you know, refer to figure whatever in the PDF. And you can go and take a look. Yeah. I found and that yeah. And it's great because um, sometimes when I listen to it during my half hour lunch break, it'll just be sitting in a very chill staff lounge, probably the most relaxed staff lounge I've ever been in. And just listening to this, getting referred to a figure of some painting or some sketch that he did and just looking at it and trying to learn how to look at a painting for like a prolonged period of time. And that's kind of been the challenge of the book so far. Like obviously he's a very interesting polymath, but just trying to challenge myself to like figure out like what it was back then that people went to a painting with when they looked at it and what they were looking for and how to just look at a painting for a long time without just your eye just moving on to really appreciate like everything that's there.
1: Right. Totally different perspective.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Cause I mean, you're reading parts about him dissecting corpses, you know, for his art. Of course he then gets more of a scientific interest in it, but like that idea of just, I don't really care for the painting of the Mona Lisa personally, but you know, it's the one that everybody knows. Yeah the fact that he studied the muscles behind people's faces and like, you know, dissected the skull and everything and how all the muscles worked so that he would know how a person would realistically smile so yeah. that he could translate it over into his work yeah. is just very, very interesting.
1: Yeah. The, the Mona Lisa I've heard, I didn't get to see it when I went to Paris, but the people who did, who I knew that did get to see it, it's, it's very small people who haven't, actually gotten the chance to go to the Louvre and see it.
0: Yeah, that's what they say.
1: Um, And it is one of those things too, where like, everyone and their mother is trying to get in there to see the Mona Lisa on any given day at any given moment. (laughs) So that that was the reason I didn't get in was it was like, you have to be there early, get your tickets ahead of time, whatever you have to do. Um, Especially if you go during a time where a lot of people are vacationing there.
0: Right. For me reading this, I've always been more interested in the notebook pages anyway. I think the yeah. Mona Lisa with him is really just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And even if you're not interested in Christianity, because a lot of the paintings are of like the Madonna, and Jesus and all that stuff. Um, not that Madonna. Um, <laughs> even if you're not like super into the, the Christian message, like just the anatomical one is just so interesting. Just how he's figuring out like the human form, like mathematically and all. It's, it's pretty interesting. So that'll be, that'll be my recommendation. And lastly, we just have one more message. Kevin, if you want to do the honors on that one.
1: Don't forget, you're beautiful. You're smart. You're amazing. You have what it takes to do anything you put your mind to. Except Except be be the the president. president.